0: percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today that's a lot of information but don't panic it's not an exact science
1: hey shannon how are you doing
0: great john how are you doing this week
1: oh pretty good it's been a pretty busy and crazy week for me
0: (laughs) what's been crazy about it
1: well i've uh, been working on writing some software for some data loggers
0: well, I'd agree that is crazy. Why would you want to do that? But, <laughs> and so
1: I'm using some embedded uh, computing platforms. You know things like the BeagleBone Black, these little single-board Linux computers. And uh, I managed, since it's mounted to a metal backplane, to short across my power supply on accident over the weekend, and uh, I had a very large current, so it vaporized the insulation on the wires, blew a physical uh, uh, hole in the top of the power management chip. And uh, produced lots of blue smoke that made me take the smoke detectors down and go running.
0: That is amazing. <laughs> like you coated your way into a fiery storm <laughs> motherboards. That's amazing. <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, so I have to replace the parts and then was very careful to uh, make sure that that cannot happen again by changing my design a little bit. Uh, things are going pretty well. I'm getting some nice data rolling in.
0: Hey, well, in the scientific method, you learn more from your failures <laughs> than your successes, right?
1: <laughs> I, I do learn from my mistakes.
0: Uh, that's what I tell my students. Hey, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. So fired the apartment. Okay, nice. Yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, it looks like from watching the news that you had a pretty exciting week yourself.
0: It was windy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, twister quotes.
0: Um, yes. So we had a tornado go through our neighborhood this week. And it was really terrifying. So, yes.
1: One of the perks of living in Oklahoma is you can have uh, free house oh.
0: relocation. Oh, boy, that's right. Um, <laughs> my son today, as we pulled into the driveway, said, I'm really glad my toys didn't blow away this week. <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean it was it was a baby it was only an EF0 was what the weather service finally rated it but it was one block away from us and so our neighbors a block away lost a lost a big shed and another neighbor had a house um had a tree fall on the corner of their house ripped out the power we didn't have power for a couple of days so wow. not that that matters for me cuz I don't like technology anyway so we read <laughs> by candlelight and uh yeah <laughs> It was pretty exciting, and that sort of s- sums up spring in Oklahoma. I think,
1: absolutely, and I mean that <laughs> we had talked after we recorded the last show actually about what we were going to do this week, and we had decided <laughs> before there's any severe weather we should do a weather
0: episode. <laughs> so it's our fault that we had severe weather before we did our weather episode. <laughs> <laughs> and See, this is how it goes, you know. We're a sus- we're a very um, very superstitious lot us meteorologists
1: right and so really we've talked all about geology but this is a general geosciences podcast and we thought well maybe it's time that we bring in some of our meteorology background and this is the right time of year to be talking about severe weather and it's a pretty interesting topic and as we've mentioned before it's a lot of the same mathematics and a lot of the same physical principles just operating on a totally different time scale than what we're used to dealing with in geoscience
0: Oh, it, it it really is. It's so awesome because it's the exact same math. It's the exact same physics. But with weather, you're talking about timescales of minutes, hours, you know, a couple of days at the most, whereas the same exact physics and math goes into describing a rock. And you're talking about millions of years, like some of the drawings just in textbooks, you wouldn't know whether it's a rock or a cloud. And actually, one of my friends and I have started a Pinterest board, clouds that look like rocks. <laughs> Because it happens so frequently, and it's because they're all governed by the same physics. It's such a cool concept when you actually stop and think about the fundamentals of the sciences.
1: Right. I mean, advection of rock driven by convection in the mantle, or advection of air masses, moist or otherwise, driven by convection on the Earth's surface in our atmospheric fluid. So it's really all the same thing.
0: Oh, exactly. John and I both love Kelvin Helmholtz waves, and they occur in sediments. They occur in clouds. It's amazing. It gets me really pumped up, and, I mean, especially this time of year in Oklahoma where there are so many different, you know, cloud formations, and the physics changes very rapidly as we learned on Wednesday when we had a tornado go through our neighborhood.
1: (laughs) Yes, and we will uh, link in some Kelvin Helmholtz things, since that's one of our favorite topics. Uh, <laughs> and you guys can read all about the brunt Weissler frequency <laughs> and how it governs whether these are occurring <laughs> or not.
0: Oh, man, I love them. They're so beautiful. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. But before we get too deep into our topic and try to kind of bring things full circle, we have some more feedback.
0: <gasps> People are listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Apparently. Uh, so... First of all, thanks to uh, Selena B, who had given us some comments on the audio of our show. So we had some levelization <laughs> problems, I think. So we're going to try to do a little bit better with that. And also uh, Ross K, who's actually uh, one of the developers of Radarscope that we've talked about in the past, had pointed out that uh, some podcatchers weren't quite getting our logo just right. So we fixed that. So you should have a nice color, don't panic, geocast logo now in well, whatever excellent. podcast you're using.
0: <laughs> I had wondered about that myself, but since I don't care about technology, I just moved <laughs> on. <laughs> and sorry, Selena, I do laugh really loud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we actually had uh, several Fun Paper Fridays come back in the news this week, which was really neat to see.
0: It uh, was. I was worried about us being timely, and man, were we ever. We have so many updates about the Fun Papers that we had been talking about. So what's the first one? Because this is really cool.
1: Well, the first one, you'll remember a week or two ago, uh, maybe two weeks ago now, we talked about NASA capturing an asteroid and that there was this kind of big drawstring approach or the snatch and go method where you're going to land or almost land, grab a little boulder and bring it back. And they announced that they've decided to go for that technique and they're going to launch in 2020.
0: So yay that we're talking about you know moving forward and launching but i'm super sad because like my mental image of a robot with his little drawstring baggie of rocks walking around really makes me sad that that's not going to happen <laughs> <laughs> and but, if you're, you know the snatch and grab is good too
1: <laughs> absolutely and if you are interested in a lot of these kind of space flight topics really highly recommend you check out the orbital mechanics podcast they've got great it's an every other week show with an absolutely massive amount of information on not only current things that are happening uh, but some background too and just a really awesome show to listen to
0: oh yeah the astronomy nerd comes out hardcore with this podcast it's super it's super fun so when you're not listening to us go over there and listen to these guys <laughs> <laughs> all
1: right and the last actually not the last there's two more updates Jeez, we were
0: I, I'm telling you, like, <laughs> these fun papers have been awesome. So the, the next one came from uh, the BBC. And so, all right, that should automatically lead you to think, well, William Smith, so the father of geologic mapping, um, one of his seminal geology maps was rediscovered um, in a museum there. They knew this map existed, but it had been missing for about 50 years, and they just found it.
1: Yeah, and they said this was had to be in the first 50 made. It was incredibly yeah. early in the run.
0: Yes, exactly, and it's just beautiful. It's this wonderful sort of um, succession of some of the strata. So it's basically a stratigraphic column that we use in geology virtually every day. If you're a geologist, you're looking at a stratigraphic column, and the coloring that he has done, and it's just, it's magnificent. Like, it's unbelievable that this was done by hand. It's a beauty to look at.
1: Yeah, so they said that the geography and the strata were printed from copper plates, and then that the watercolor finish was done by hand, like you just mentioned, and that you would actually kind of saturate the formation boundary, and then somehow they flowed the paint back up, so it faded, and you got this really kind of iconic look, and there are some great pictures of it, and the entire thing has been digitized. So look in the show notes for the link. It takes you to a Flickr archive where you can look at every single page of this map, and it's divided up over something like 15 sheets, I think.
0: Oh, it is It is a work of art. It's unbelievable, and it just makes me even more excited to go make geologic maps because it's amazing. So that was our second update. What else do we have? <laughs>
1: All right, the last one has to do with a fun paper that I think you may have found this one, actually, uh, that we did quite a while back on radio bursts coming (laughs) from space and the real-time detection of one at the Park Radio Telescope, or Park's Radio Telescope.
0: I want to say, I I can't even talk about this because this update scares the crap out of me. (laughs) 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 Um, One of my massive fears is aliens, and... (laughs) (laughs) you know this update says that they exist and so that's really scary for me
1: (laughs) well that's that's going a little bit far i think uh this update says says. (laughs) and we've got the the link in the show notes again that of these fast radio bursts which we've only detected 10 in the last 15 years uh it looks like that the arrival delay from the first to last waves, is always some kind of multiple of 187.5, which seems like a completely random number. But right now they said they have no natural process that can explain this. But, of course, we're not about to say that this is some kind of crazy uh, beacon from life. This is probably (laughs) just some process that we haven't discovered yet.
0: Which is, I mean, even cooler, actually. Like, it'd be super scary and neat if it was an extraterrestrial origin. But it's even cooler that we're detecting these frequencies from some process that we haven't seen or heard before at all that's it's kind of mind-blowing to think about
1: yeah and the signals have to come from inside the milky way based on some of their properties so the most interesting stuff can really be in your backyard
0: it's right next door (laughs) oh no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, yeah, so, we should... Yeah, uh, um, I skipped over that one quickly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we should get in back into our topic today of weather and severe weather. So we don't have a really stringent outline for this. So, Shan, where do you want to start with this topic?
0: <laughs> well, uh, John and I figured that we could nerd out for hours on meteorology. So we're going to try to, you know, keep it, keep it contained because I'm sure it will be one of many meteorology shows where we delve into things but like like we said before severe weather season starts really ramping up even though here it already has um i just wanted to talk about because it's something that i get asked about and i know john you do too as soon as anyone knows that you're a meteorologist and there's bad weather coming they constantly are asking you about it right which is great i mean that's what you know meteorologists are there to disseminate information so that's good. Um, but everyone always asks me where I get my weather information. And yeah, I'm sure I mean, you get the same question over and over.
1: Yeah. People want to know what website do you go to? What forecast do you believe? Why is my forecast changing every hour? And so on and so forth.
0: <laughs> so I just want to encourage everybody to visit their local weather service office homepage and get used to that homepage. These guys put a lot of effort into making this very public-friendly. And it's the first place that I go, and I guarantee you it is where many of your local television meteorologists go as well to get information.
1: Absolutely. The Weather Service Office is an invaluable resource, and their webpage has a lot of information. And it takes a while to get used to where it's all buried because there's so much <laughs> of it.
0: Yes, <laughs> that is true. Um, but, I mean, it's really it's fun to poke around. There's all kinds of stuff about like your local climate, In addition to all the words that they use that you may not understand, there's all kinds of like glossaries for these words in there. It's very public friendly. And I think a lot of people don't really realize that. They think maybe that's just a place where meteorologists go to talk to other meteorologists. And it's true, there is advanced information on there. But there's also great information for the public. That's what these public servants, that's what their job is. And they do a excellent job at it so
1: yeah and i mean there's forecasters dedicated to each zone that have the most up-to-date possible data that they're using with a really advanced system uh, called awips or i guess now they may even be on awips too yeah yeah i think they're past
0: the original awips yeah that's for sure um that was that was something that, you know, the, the Severe Storms Laboratory, you can go to their website as well, but they're basically there to help support the Weather Service with their, um, with their technology. But the other place that you can go besides the Weather Service is the Storm Prediction Center, which is tightly works with the Weather Service. They're, you know, the same government agency, and they're the people that put out, that are really focused on storms anywhere all over the country. And they focus in on them a couple of days out and start putting out a lot of advanced information about what they think is going to happen in the atmosphere over the next few days.
1: Absolutely. And the Storm Prediction Center and the National Severe Storm Laboratory are right next to each other and right next to the Norman (laughs) Weather Service office, all sitting in the National Weather Center in Norman, Oklahoma. So you guys have uh, kind of the trio right there.
0: Yeah, we do. Um it used to be separated out and now it's all in one amazing building, the National Weather Center. And um so all of these scientists work hand in hand. They're all right there. It's a really crazy atmosphere, no pun intended, <laughs> or it is. Um when, you know, the severe weather really starts ramping up, but this is the first place I go and I think it's the first place that citizens should go to because I've noticed, I mean, I don't know if you've had this problem with all your crazy winter weather <laughs> up there, but, like, there's a lot of media hype about the weather. And in Oklahoma, it's like this badge of honor that we wear about our severe storms. But it's getting, there's a lot of media-induced panic, I feel like, lately.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not so much the case with winter weather that we did have a pretty bad forecast bust earlier this year with the New York snowstorm. Yeah, Uh, a few months ago. But it's really hard to communicate this information, especially because as I have a friend that uh, works in the weather industry, he always says, you know, we like to talk in probabilities, and these more vague uh, ways of saying things. And he says, you know, at the end of the day, the guy that is driving the truck, or doing the work, or just trying to get to and from his job, wants to know if it's going to rain. (laughs)
0: It's so true. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, There is a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of him hein and a lot of statistics that goes into it and a lot of sort of cover your butt type things that happen. I feel like that's that's funny. Yeah. Is it going to rain? Where is it going to rain? When is it going to rain? and you know but scientists
1: think, we're very comfortable talking in these yeah. uh, kind of probabilities and uncertainties but it's really hard to communicate that we're not even good at communicating that to each other
0: each other that's for sure <laughs> that is for sure i've heard a lot of fights that come from that exact lack of communication it's true i mean a lot of people don't even know you know if there's a 50 percent chance of rain like what does that mean we've done a bad job communicating to the public and this is this is an overarching science problem in general is that Scientists are nerds, and we have a hard, hard time talking to not nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that think when it says 50% chance of rain, they think that means 50% of the area is going to get rain, which is not at all what that means. But I've had that question posed to me hundreds of times. And that's not, I mean, I think it's our fault that people don't know this. We need to communicate this, these things better you know, these concepts and this wording that we use. We need to find a better way to get this information out there. And I think the Weather Service is doing a good job at providing those tools on their websites.
1: Yeah, they've really updated the the interface a lot over the past even five years or so. And oh, even in the past year, they've changed it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the past year, I'm on... Um, it's just sort of like a beta testing thing for, you know, do you like the look of this? Do you like the look of that? And it's like they've changed it in the last six months to make it a more user-friendly interface. So it's really it's really something they keep up on and that they, they work on a lot because this is where you should go. Like people ask me where I go, that's where I start. You yeah. know, the Storm Prediction Center, um, their outlooks and forecasts, I feel like, are a bit more advanced. I mean, certainly they're there for the public. The public can use them, but they use a lot of really advanced terminology, I feel like. And so, you know, that may be a bit overwhelming for people. But
1: Yeah, the Storm Prediction Center outlooks are a little bit tougher to digest, generally. And I, I do find it fascinating that if you ever go on a tour through the facility, you see the analysts in the Storm Prediction Center that are actually hand contouring observation maps, and still doing it, you know, the very old-fashioned hand way, coloring it, even though we have some great contouring programs, just because you get to know the data better. So these are people that are passionately involved in trying to make these weather forecasts as good as they possibly can be, and you're not going to find that anywhere else.
0: No, that is such an excellent point. I love that so much. We used to do that when I worked in the Severe Storms Lab. You know, we'd know a couple of days in advance when things were coming, and it was sort of the thing that all of us student workers would do is that we'd pass out blank maps and we'd pick, you know, are we going to contour the 800 millibar levels or anything like that? And so that we'd get together, we'd hand contour it, and then we'd talk about it and move on. And it was just something we sort of did to help learn, but to point out that the highest level professionals still do this because taking the time to analyze that data helps them get a better idea about what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, and you know things as the meteorologist or as the scientist that the algorithm doesn't. For example, you know that your isobars should kink around a front. And we're not going to go into all the details of why that is, but the computer doesn't necessarily know that. And it's just going to contour right through the front, unless you have right. very dense surface observations, which we
0: don't. Exactly. And computers in general will often make bullseyes around. You know, really high highs, really low lows, and that sort of distorts the rest of the contouring. Um, And this happens for geologists that are contouring, too. And I feel like the, the effects of that sort of weight on these, like, highs and lows makes the rest of the contouring less meaningful. And unless you understand that you're going to use these models in an incorrect way. And you know how I feel about models.
1: (laughs) Yes, we do know how you feel about models. And (laughs) it's really an interesting thing because we've talked about real data in the past and that real data is kind of messy. And like you said, the computer will draw a bullseye around something when you can look at it and say, you know, that station's been acting funny for the past few weeks.
0: Right, Uh, exactly. Maybe there's a rattlesnake in it, and so... (laughs) Yeah, maybe there's a snake know. in it.
1: Maybe there's uh, you know, something that's <laughs> clogging the rain gauge. Uh, maybe the fan in the enclosure for the temperature sensors has failed and air is no longer properly circulating. There's a thousand things that can go wrong with these instruments. And if you believe every single one of them, you're going to get burned eventually.
0: Models are always wrong. Some are useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that we have here, John, in Oklahoma, which I know you're intimately familiar with, is the Oklahoma Mesonet. And so their website, just mezzanet.org, is amazing because Oklahoma does not lack for weather weenies at all, <laughs> right? And the information um, with these mesonet sites, so what they are are these little individual sites. There's one or two per county. We have 77 counties here in Oklahoma. So that's a lot of weather information, and they provide a lot of really excellent uh, data for anyone to go look at.
1: Yeah, and it's so dense that it's really incredible to be able to watch fronts march across or see the effects of like cold pools from storms and all kinds of really interesting things that you normally don't get to see on our national, uh, pretty sparse weather observation grid.
0: John means that the the data is dense, not that <laughs> <laughs> not that the people who run the mesonet are dense. Um... <laughs> Um, It's absolutely true. Uh, It's such a neat website because they do all this color contouring and it is, it's those little small scale things that you wouldn't necessarily see elsewhere. I mean, even our radar data over the country, you know, radars see a really long way, but there's a lot of places where you still can't see a lot of things. But this Mesonet data is just amazing. The amount of instrumentation on each of these Mesonet sites is quite vast.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's soil temperatures at different depths, there's solar radiation, in addition to all the standard meteorological parameters, of course, wind at different heights on some of them, and mm-hmm. a lot of them are five-minute data. Some of them are, I think, at least one station of is one-minute data, so updates yes. every one yep. minute.
0: Yep, yep. It's a really high-resolution stuff, and you can pull a lot from it. Um, anyone in Oklahoma or interested in Oklahoma, I would highly recommend that you go to the Mesonet website and our state climatologist puts out this thing through the Oklahoma climate survey and it's called the the weather ticker and so it's an email and he's hysterically funny but besides that he runs down and he breaks down all these sort of meteorological jargon in words that are super easy to understand and he usually highlights like different things on the mesonet um that you know Citizens, normal citizens, even meteorologists probably don't know all these things that exist. And it's a really informative um, email that comes out, you know, once every four, five, six days, depending on what's happening with the weather. So I highly recommend you to go and sign up for the ticker as well.
1: Yeah, even if you're not super interested in whether if you're just an instrumentation geek like I am, or if you just <laughs> like science in general, it's pretty fun to read some of these things.
0: Oh, his graphs are amazing. Like the graphs that come out, the meteograms that come out of these Mesonet stations are, yeah, if you're just a data junkie in general, it's unreal.
1: And, well, and you can kind of think of this as the transportable array equivalent in meteorology. You know in seismology we had this giant experiment that marched across the US with a really dense network of seismometers and we've got some of the best pictures of you know, the crust ever really from right. this great instrumentation set and it was a really neat thing but this is just in one state but it's fixed and we have a very long time series of data and you can pull out some really neat things
0: Right exactly a lot of these um a lot of these stations have been in place for decades so You know, it as so often with, you know, when you're trying to set up a dense data network, you're really prohibited by money. So it either can't stay in place, because you need the instrumentation elsewhere, um, and there's all kinds of limitations. But this one is, you know, fixed and it's been cranking for a long time, and it's super helpful because these small scale um, anomalies can be seen pretty quickly. Okay, so in addition to those, you know, local resources, I mean, the Oklahoma mesonet is obviously a really big deal. Other states have mesonets that maybe aren't as dense, but are trying to get off the ground. I know we have a lot of visitors here from all over the world that are trying to model um, our weather network here. Um, But the weather service in your local area, no matter where you are, um, also offers a lot of different public outreach programs that you should absolutely take part in.
1: Yeah, so they offer, especially down in the Tornado Alley region, uh, Uh storm spotter training for severe weather, and that's a really great program. You should definitely take advantage of it. They normally go to schools and community centers and that kind of thing, uh, starting generally in January, February, somewhere in there, uh, going pretty much through severe storm season, really.
0: Uh, Yeah, I have a student in my class right now, actually, um, that's in one of the spotter training Uh, classes that the Norman weather service is currently carrying on. And I know they've already held a couple and, you know, they'll keep holding these storm spotter training. And this really helps the weather service too. And we're not talking about like necessarily storm chasers, but just if you're at your house and you see something and you're a trained spotter, call that into the weather service. They want your information and they'll take it more seriously. If you've had some of their training
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this is a really great thing. Just so you know, you know, for your own self preservation, preservation of your family, <laughs> if you live in a weather prone area, uh, what to look for in some of these severe storms, and I mean, it's definitely not safe, really, to be a storm chaser, proper in exactly. quotes. It's an incredibly dangerous thing. Uh, but spotters are invaluable because we have to ground truth what people see on radar and surface observations. And really the only way to know there's a tornado on the ground is if all of a sudden some of your stations go offline.
0: <laughs> right, exactly, which you can see in mesonite data quite frequently. Um, so that's funny. So that's what makes sort of meteorology different from the other aspects of the geosciences is that timescale that John and I were talking about earlier because those timescales on when a tornado forms, I mean, that's seconds. Just this, this last storm that went through our neighborhood, I, I went outside, and I was like, okay. And I saw what it looked like a lowering. And I thought, okay, well, that looks a little shady. You know, something's, something might come out of that. And then I looked on the television and what I was looking at was what the news chopper was looking at. <laughs> and that was on my television screen. And so I thought, okay, let's get out of here. And um, within 10 minutes, it was a tornado. That's a short time scale, you know, and people watching these things that are trained help get that information to the weather service so they can issue warnings where there aren't any
1: yeah and i mean i went to my first storm spotter training let's see i found the certificate when i was back at home this last year Uh, let's see i think it was in 2004 so
0: (laughs) it's been a little while you started nerding out pretty early
1: (laughs) absolutely and i'm actually still really good friends with the uh, the meteorologist that taught that class uh, back in '04, he still works for the weather service
0: right and i mean that that's a great um great contacts for you know citizens to learn who these people are that are making these life and death decisions because it's really easy to go back and look at a blown forecast you know or i mean everyone complains about the weather right but it's easy to go back and look at these blown forecasts and say what are these guys thinking well If you get to know your local meteorologist, you get to know a little bit more about the weather, you understand that we don't understand a lot about it. And I think a lot of these, you know, these storms that get misforecast, like people don't understand how complex meteorology is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredibly complex science. And actually, it's kind of this whole thing and a couple of things that we've said during this made me think of uh, actually earlier this week. I had written a really short blog post based on something that I heard on the Technical Difficulties podcast a long time ago, Mm -hmm. and it it has to do with what an expert is exactly, because anybody can say they're an expert on anything, right? Right. And we generally Mm -hmm. think of experts as being like, oh, they know every possible thing about this one field, but... And in this podcast, I actually quoted a line from, of all things, the Windows 95 Application Programming (laughs) Interface Manual.
0: Uh, (laughs) That was my favorite part of your blog post. I will say that, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) It said, the nature of an expert is not someone who knows the details. It's someone who understands the fundamentals really well.
0: That's so awesome.
1: Yeah, and and it applies to me, of course, not only to geoscience, but especially in this case, because when you're looking at a complex meteorological situation, You don't have that much data generally, even if you're in Oklahoma and you have very dense spacing. The spacing is nothing compared to the scale of a supercell storm. Exactly. And you have to understand fundamentally and physically what's happening and why it's going to be happening and be able to infer that from the data available to you all very rapidly.
0: Yes, the short time period is a big deal here, right? I mean, even on the scale of making a daily forecast or something like that. There's just so much data and so much to take into account. The better you understand things at the fundamental level, the better you're going to be. The better meteorologist you're going to be, the better scientist you're going to be, the quicker warning you're going to make. That's such a good point, and I think a lot of people miss that.
1: Yeah, and so that's kind of a really meandering path through severe weather, (laughs) but I feel like we have to say that if you do live in an area where severe weather uh, can occur and... Really, that can be pretty much anywhere, especially in the continental United States. Exactly. Uh, You need to have some kind of a plan, of of course, with your family as to what you're going Mm -hmm. to do if severe weather occurs, where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, and what you're going to do if a disaster does strike. And the Weather Service website, the FEMA website, there are tons of great resources to help you plan this out and make sure that you have the best possible chance of surviving any of these events.
0: Absolutely. I mean, people um, in geology, to bring this back full circle um, to what we usually talk about. Um, A lot of people spend their field seasons out West and out West in the summertime, something happens every afternoon and it's rain showers. And it's like so many people are killed by lightning. But if you just know some fundamentals about lightning safety, it doesn't have to be a hazard anymore. You know, last year in Rocky mountain national park, there were three or four people hikers that were killed there by lightning. And it's just, it's a shame, you know, just paying attention to some of these basic weather safety and knowing about your area and knowing about your forecast will help alleviate a lot of these senseless deaths, you know.
1: Yeah. And severe weather doesn't just have to be tornadoes, like Chance that it can exactly. be lightning. Uh, we get hail here in Pennsylvania occasionally. And there have been cases where people have been basically bludgeoned to death by large hail. Because Absolutely. they were caught outside, and it's not a situation mm-hmm. you want to be in. I know there was a runner in Oklahoma that was out exercising several years ago, and what ended up saving him is he jumped in a dumpster and then in someone's pickup as they were driving by huh. and he was severely <laughs> beaten by these large hailstones. So you're right that's you have to think about all these different uh, different yeah. ways that the weather and could turn bad in your area and there's so many
0: flooding can happen anywhere and everywhere and does even in dry climates, floods are you know really common when you get a lot of rainfall and so that's another that's another reason just taking the time to learn a little bit about it and to pay attention to your forecast from an expert um, can help you be weather aware.
1: So geologist field safety, you need to know a little bit of meteorology.
0: (laughs) Oh that's right I think they all just count on me to uh, tell them more than they've ever wanted to know about meteorology. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, I think
1: we should probably think about uh, going on to everybody's favorite segment as we were back on our monotonically increasing time trend last week, (laughs) so we don't want to go much over uh, 45 minutes or so, hopefully. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. And we have a super awesome, fun paper Friday to talk about.
1: We do. And I think we should mention our recording date for this week's show.
0: Yeah, it's April Fool's Day. (laughs)
1: Yes, yeah, so we're recording this on <laughs> April 1st, and everybody loves the April Fool's jokes that nerds play on each other.
0: Oh, man, do we ever. It's super great. I mean, my listening to NPR on April Fool's Day is my first thing I think of in the morning.
1: <laughs> so Science had a paper that said... Uh, a spacecraft that was crashing into mercury heard like sc- agonizing screams in different languages and uh, but the one that we chose is actually from the journal nature and the title of the paper in the zoology section is here be dragons
0: oh man it's so great <laughs> i will
1: say this is an incredibly well written paper and i know uh, one of my contacts on social media had said the other day something about what's a few orders of magnitude between friends referring to a calculation and my reply was, Well a nature paper. And
0: <laughs>
1: this uh, this is kind of in that vein of tongue in cheek humor.
0: Oh, it it is though. It's so that was the first thing I noticed about it as well, is that it's so well written and it takes into account um all these basically the anthropogenic effects on our climate, is repaving the way for the age of dragons.
1: Yeah, and so they say that, you know, in the early medieval period, it was this really paradise for dragons. We had warm temperatures, lots of nights for them to battle. And uh, one of the great lines of the paper says, it was also a time when wealth and status were measured in terms of gold and silver, the preferred nesting material for Western dragons.
0: (laughs) Western dragons. And so they go on to tie this into how the economy is downturning. More people are trying to find these get-rich-quick like (laughs) treasures, basically. Yeah. (laughs) And because of us starting to exploit these treasures, we're rediscovering dragons whose hordes these treasures belong to.
1: Well, and not only that, it says that the the dragons have these stir events where they'll awaken to check and see if it's a favorable climate for them. And uh, let's see, <laughs> it says the first stir coincided with the depths of little ice age and a bewildering lack of nights.
0: <laughs> so they went back to sleep, of course, because there was their favorite combatant and food source <laughs> was unavailable.
1: <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, you know, with global temperature rising says maybe the next stir
0: maybe huh. they won't go uh. back to sleep oh man there's even a great graph graphing temperature anomaly over time and the dragon's unigram probability of reawakening
1: right so this is this is basically the popularity <laughs> of at least the way i read it that that would be the popularity of the word dragon or dragons in literature right, right. yeah
0: Unbelievable.
1: So there is some data in this paper, and believe it or not, there are some citations. I haven't looked them all up, but I'm guessing that they are also <laughs> April Fool's articles.
0: Uh, they're all science and nature papers, though. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And the disclaimer at the bottom is some of the content of this article may merit a degree of skepticism.
1: <laughs> well, and of course, they have to sum up the paper saying that they really recommend further research for fireproof clothing and that we avoid honorific titles (laughs)
0: lest you become a food source and or combatant um this was spectacular (laughs) it was so well done like it really made my day i think i'm gonna copy it off and just leave it on my desk for people to peruse because it's so great
1: (laughs) yeah and actually this was we kind of called an audible uh, on the day that we recorded this because we had another paper planned that we'll reserve so thanks to martin and hannah for bringing this paper to my attention this morning it was definitely worth the switch and we hope you guys enjoy reading it and taking a look at the figures and make sure you tell us what your favorite fun paper friday or nerd april fool's prank was
0: Oh, exactly. Uh, There's a ton out there. Um, I never knew reading the scientific literature was so exciting on April 1st, but this is a good year for it, that's for sure.
1: All right, well, I think that's about the show. So, Shannon, where can they find us if they want to send us any kind of comment, audio, email? uh, Let us know what they read for Fun Paper Friday.
0: Right, we appreciate your feedback, so keep it coming. Um, You can always leave a comment at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can email us, show at Don't Panic Geocast. We're on Twitter, at Don't Panic Geo, where John is at geo underscore Lehman and I am at Shannon Doolin. You can also find John at johnrlehman.com.
1: Right, that's where I do all these uh, blog posts and a lot of really nerdy experiments that we don't get time to talk about uh, here that's on the for show. Sure.
0: <laughs> Well, everyone out there, have a good week. Don't blow away and go read some weather websites.
1: Yeah, remember, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings,
1: conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.